Let's keep that final thought in mind as we just spend a moment in prayer and ask God to help us to know him through his word and through his son Jesus Christ with the help of his Holy Spirit. Be still and know that I am God. Lord, in a noisy world where so many other things crowd in for our attention, so many other demands compete for our allegiance, thank you that in your wisdom you've given us this day, the Lord's Day, to realign our lives and refocus our perspective. Lord, we want to know you, but we want to know you better. Thank you that you've made yourself known as we look around us in our world, spoiled though it is by our own activity. We can still see your Creator's hand. And you've made yourself known through your Word and supremely through your Son, Jesus, who is the Word, and left us with a record of who he is and what he did and what he promises even today. So as again, as we look at that word, we pray that by your Spirit, we will know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, that we may be, like, may, may be made like to him, uh, unto him. And thank you that your love is a love that never can be exhausted, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So whoever we are this evening, whatever our situation, may we be more aware when we leave this place than when we entered it of your amazing grace, the riches of your grace and love and mercy. And may we respond in repentance, in faith and in praise and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. WWJD What would Jesus do? It's a question that received very wide publicity in 2003 when it was discovered that Christian Cameron Stout who went on to win Big Brother that year was also a distant or reasonably distant relative of Rodney Stout from, also from Orkney if you didn't know that, that Cameron wore a bracelet with those letters on it. What would Jesus do? Not only did sales of the cheap cloth plastic versions rise, but also more expensive versions soon appeared on the scene. And all sorts of bric-a-brac with the same thing on. I picked this up in Faith Mission Bookshop yesterday. I'm not sure what it is. It's something of you clip on your belt, but it's nice and bright, and it says, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I even discovered on the internet that there's a book that's been published by a doctor called, What Would Jesus Eat? <laughs> I'm not sure what the answer is, as I've not read the book, and I have no intention of reading it. <laughs> And maybe if I do, you'll notice a difference. 
sounds a simple sort of question, doesn't it? What would Jesus do? It's actually not that easy always to work out in situations today what Jesus would do. You see, the only evidence you have on which to base an answer, an accurate answer, is to examine the accounts of the life of Jesus which are recorded in the New Testament part of the Bible. Uh, You look at what he did then and you kind of try and project forward and think, well, if that's what he did then, then we can work out somehow what he would do now. We've been studying one of those four accounts on Sunday evenings, if you've been coming regularly to Charlotte Chapel. An account written by a man named Luke. Under the title we called it, Good News of Great Joy for All People. And this evening, with God's help, with your cooperation, I'd like to think about a different question, a slightly different question. Not WWJD, what would Jesus do? And certainly not WWJE, what would Jesus eat? I'd like to think about WWJS, what would Jesus say? And we're going to read this evening, very simply, two accounts, uh, two incidents from the life of Jesus, in which we find (coughs) that Jesus says two surprising things, two surprising statements. (coughs) What I'd like you to do, if my voice survives this, is as we read them, see if you can spot the surprises in the story. So you'll need a Bible. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the pews. Don't feel embarrassed. Although if you come regularly and don't bring your Bible, feel very embarrassed and start bringing it. Uh, But uh, pick up a Bible. It's Luke 5, verses 12 through 26. Page 1032, if you have a pew Bible. By the way, if anyone wants this, we'd be prepared to wear it. You're welcome to take it afterwards. First come, first served. Luke 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went upon the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is God's word. Well, did you spot the two surprising statements? What kind of depends on how well you know the Bible and how often you've read these stories before. Because if you're familiar with them, you know what's coming next. You may be not surprised in the slightest, therefore. What, what we need to try and do is put ourselves in the shoes or, or the sandals of the people who were present when this these stories happened. And then I think we'll be able to identify these surprising statements and maybe, which is the real purpose of this, maybe we can experience the surprises for ourselves as we realise what this means to us. Now, very simply, uh, these two incidents or stories focus on two people in need. There's a leper, stories described in verses 12 to 16, and there's a paralytic, a paralysed man, in verses 17 to 26. In both cases, there is a healing. But the real focus of the stories goes beyond the physical healing and restoration. What I want us to see is that the real miracle in these stories is about restored relationships. So let's look at each one in turn and we'll identify the surprising statements, I hope. First of all, then, the healing of the leper, if you look at verses 12 to 16. Uh, this story and the next one are recorded also by Matthew and Mark in their Gospels, not by John. Uh, Luke doesn't give us any details of where and when exactly the story happened. Simply it says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along. What he does is focus in his Gospel on the nature of the problem of the man... And Luke alone, as a doctor, gives us a little more medical detail about the condition of the man. We'll see that in a moment. It is a serious condition with most obviously physical symptoms. Luke tells us he is covered with leprosy. Now, the word used here to describe leprosy covered a whole range, in its context in those days, it covered a whole range of skin diseases right down to ringworm. Uh, it probably didn't include what we call leprosy today, which is Hansen's disease. Uh, what is important, of course, is what is noticeable. That the illness disfigured the person and marked him or her out to everyone as a leper. Uh, for the people of Israel, the law of Moses in those first five books of the Bible, particularly in Leviticus, the third book, told them in great detail what was to happen when they lived in community and someone got a skin disease. 
It's not very exciting stuff, but you can read it in Leviticus 14, all the details about what was to happen. If you've got a skin disease, you woke up one morning, look, I was going to say looked in the mirror, I'm not sure I had mirrors in those days, but anyway, your wife said to you, you've got a mark on your face or whatever, I don't know, whatever. Everyone noticed it. What did you do? Well, you didn't go to your GP because they didn't have them. You went to the priest who acted as a kind of health inspector. And the priest prescribed a course of treatment that you were to take in order to clear up the problem. However, if it didn't clear up, if it remained for several weeks, and it's all specified in detail, if it was deemed to be long-term and permanent, maybe even terminal then, then the priest made a declaration about that person. He made a diagnosis. He said, probably said sorry, but didn't tell you that, but he said, you are now unclean. And you must live apart from society because your illness is infectious or contagious. Rodney and I were discussing what's the difference. The medics will tell me afterwards. But anyway, catching, all right? So, terrible though the physical symptoms were, they were greatly compounded by the social consequences. You were banned from society. This is what the law of Moses said. It's pretty harsh. But you remember they lived in close proximity in those days. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, Shobai, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean, he must live alone, he must live outside the camp. You can imagine that kind of sense of alienation, living apart from others other than other sufferers. Uh, in the Derbyshire countryside, near to where I grew up, uh, there's the little town of Eam. At the end of 1665, in August 1665, bubonic plague arrived in Eam at the house of the village tailor, a man called George Vickers, via a parcel of cloth from London where the Great Plague was rampant. Uh, the cloth was damp and was hung out in front of the fire to dry and it released plague-infested inf fleas. This is all documented. If you go to Eames, well, worth going, there's a museum and you can see Jill down there who lives near there as well. You can see, uh, you can see a, a museum with all the details about this. And George Vickers was the first victim to die of bubonic plague. It took hold and began to decimate the village. One after another died. It raged for 14 months, claimed the lives of at least 260 villagers. By the 1st of November, 1666, it ran its course and claimed its last victim. And these villagers, because of their Christian conviction, took a conscious decision not to risk infecting anyone else and they cut themselves off from the rest of society. People would go and leave food and supplies at the edge of the village, but nobody left until the disease had run its course. Now, modern example, well, more modern example than story there, of the kind of thing, way in which leprosy was regarded. With the same kind of horror as bubonic plague. But for the leper, there was no return or relief in normal circumstances. For those who had the disease, once you got it, it was terminal. Luke tells us that the man in the story was covered with leprosy. It's an advanced case, literally the word in Greek there means he's full of leprosy. 
So you imagine this man, for years, his only association with other people has been with other lepers. No one else would approach him, and he was forbidden to approach anybody else. Now, somehow this man hears about this teacher that everyone is talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, who has the power to heal sick people. So, in his desperate condition, he adopts desperate measures. Verse 12, when Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. We are not told of the reaction of the other people when the man ran up. Those who were present, no doubt many would have fallen back in horror and covered up their faces for fear of getting infected. But the question is, WWJD, what will Jesus do? Will he recoil in horror? And WWJS, what will Jesus say? Depart from me? You see, that's what you might expect if you'd never read this before. Especially as this man Jesus claims to be a holy man. A man from God. For holiness and uncleanness do not mix. But this is not what happened. Here's the surprise. The surprising response of Jesus. What he did. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Surely, Jesus could have healed him at a distance. We we sang about it in the song that we're going to sing at the end again. You know, about him healing the soldier's child. He didn't even bother going there. He just said, go home, it's okay. But he identifies with the man and his sickness, as he identifies with sinners and their sin, by touching him. And the words are very significant. He reached out his hand. If you know the Old Testament, there are echoes from the Old Testament. It often describes God intervening on behalf of his people with an outstretched, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Here's God's power at work. And then we have the surprising statement of Jesus, what he said, I am willing, be clean. Jesus is not only willing to help the man, he is able to help him. Rather than the holiness of Jesus being contaminated by the leprosy of the man, the uncleanness of the man, no, the uncleanness of the man is cleansed by the holiness of Jesus. So we have the miraculous outcome and immediately the leprosy left him. Now, what's the result? The obvious result is that he's restored to health. But there is more to the story than this. For Jesus deals not only with the physical symptoms, but he also deals with the social consequences. He is not only restored to health, he is restored to society. Notice what Jesus orders him. Don't tell anyone, he says, but go show yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. He follows the instructions laid down in Leviticus chapter 14. You see, the man needs to get a clean bill of health And Jesus follows the law of the Lord scrupulously by telling him to follow the instructions which are laid down there. Then he can be restored to society. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Luke, Michael Wilcox says of this initial act of Jesus touching the man, it was literally a renewed contact with his fellow man, perhaps the first for many years, 
And it signalized the coming reunion with family and friends, a reintegration with the society from which the disease had cut him off. It was to bring about a mending of all those broken relationships. You imagine this man has lived apart for all these years and he can go home to his family, walk through the door and nobody jumps back in horror. He's welcomed back into the fold of his family. He can go to the synagogue on Sunday. He can go to the shop. He can go to the market. It can be restored to his normal life that he probably hasn't experienced for many, many years. Now, the implication for it is obvious. Wilcox goes on. This too, the word of Jesus, can achieve. And in our tormented world, we do not have to look far to see the need for it. One of the key words of the gospel is reconciliation. And as we are reconciled to God, so we are reconciled among ourselves. And the church whose members are no longer lepers to one another, but united in fellowship and love, is the most powerful testimony to the power of the living God. Now I simply ask you here this evening, is that the kind of testimony that we have in our church? That there are no lepers among us. That no matter what your background may be, no matter what your situation may be, no matter the kind of life you've lived, and even the symptoms you may have left in your life, are you still welcomed as part of God's people, restored to a relationship with people? And let me say to those of us here this evening, maybe some of you feel, that's me. I feel unclean. I am unclean. See, sin stains our lives, ruins our lives, marks our lives. And maybe it's gone so far in your life that it's begun to ostracise you from other people. You don't relate well to other people. And gradually the number of friends you have and intimate friends is lessening. I simply ask you this evening, do you believe, as this man did, that Jesus has the power to cleanse and restore you? Have you come to him and asked him to cleanse and restore you? If you do, you may say, well, if I did that, I wouldn't be welcome. I, 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 I'm too bad. What I've done is, is too terrible. If you only knew, you, you wouldn't even want me in the church. But you see, the surprising word of Jesus is, always, I'm willing, I'm able. I'm willing, be clean. Maybe a message for you this evening. So the cleansing leper does what Jesus tells him. He shows himself to the priest. He gets a clean bill of health. But the order of Jesus, notice carefully what the order of Jesus was. It wasn't a show and tell. You have in school. He said, show the priest, but don't tell. Unfortunately, Mark tells us it's the man himself who goes and tells everyone what Jesus has done for him. The reason probably that Jesus doesn't want everyone to know about this is because he's becoming overwhelmed with this kind of thing and his real purpose is a much greater purpose as we now move on to the second story where we see this. Jesus withdraws, as we've seen again in Luke's Gospel, to pray, to refocus on the purpose for which God has called him. So let's look at the second story, which is one of my favourite stories in the Bible, the healing of a paralytic. You see that in verses 17 to 26. Once again, Luke doesn't give us any details about when and where it happened. Uh, if you read Mark's account, it actually happened in the town of Capernaum. Uh, by the Sea of Galilee. All, all Luke says is, one day as he was teaching. And once again, there's a really surprising statement at the heart of the story. So let's try and visualise it as it happened in order to gain maximum impact. Jesus, we're told, is teaching in a house. Sometimes he taught outside, 
Sometimes he sought by the seaside. Sometimes he taught as he walked along. Sometimes we saw the other week, he taught from a boat. Uh, this time he's teaching in a house. It's a very crowded house. It's full of the ordinary people who flock to hear Jesus. But for the first time in the Gospel, we learn also that the religious leaders of Israel, hearing of what this Jesus is doing and saying, have come to check him out. The Pharisees and scribes or teachers of the law were the religious leaders of Israel who saw it as their duty to protect God's law and make sure that people kept it scrupulously. They weren't large in number. There were only about 6,000 Pharisees in the whole of Israel at this time. But they had a remarkable influence on the life of the nation. And once again, we see the focus is on another needy person. This time, a man who's described as a paralytic. He's probably a quadriplegic who has no use of any of his limbs. We aren't given any details of how he became like this, how long he's been like this. What is clear is that he spends his life lying on his back, on his mat, unable to walk, and so unlike the leper, he's unable to get to Jesus. But he has a group of friends. Uh, Mark again tells in his Gospel, he has four friends, because he needed four friends to carry him to Jesus, one on each corner of his carrying mat. I love this story, just imagine it. You know, they come in and they visit their friend regularly and there he is lying on the mat and they say to him, listen, friend, or whatever his name was, listen, we've heard about Jesus. He's appearing down the road here. Uh, We think we should take you to him. He can heal the sick. And so they grab a corner of the mat each and they walk off down the road to get him to the house. They've heard the house he's in. And as they come, they see a huge crowd. When I was a boy growing up... um, we read the Bible in the authorised version and in the authorised version it said they could not get near for the press and I always imagined it was all the newspapers but um, <laughs> it means the pressing crowd and so here they are they've got a problem they bring their friend to Jesus it's actually not the point of the story but for those of us who are Christians and we're, we're praying 40 days of prayer praying for our friends three friends um, sometimes you have to bring your friends to Jesus. If they can't or won't come themselves. Uh, not by coercion, then it may not be an easy job as these men didn't, but, but just think about that for a moment. This man needed friends to bring him to Jesus. And when they get there, they find the house is packed out. They can't get in. Nobody's going to let them through. However, this doesn't deter them. They're determined to bring their friend to Jesus despite the difficulties. Um, houses in Palestine, of course, in those days, didn't have pointy roofs. If you're thinking of pointy roofs, you, you're going to get confused with this story, all right? They had flat roofs, with access usually by a stairway up the side. When we lived in Pakistan, we lived in a house like this for several years. And you could go on top of the house, uh, you could sunbathe up there, you could put your washing up there, and in some cases, even the grass grew on the top and you could mow the lawn on the top of there. But um, if you've been to these parts of the world, you'll recognise this. And the roof materials weren't like ours as well. They were usually compacted clay laid over branches which supported the roof. Uh, And Luke adds an interesting detail that there were roof tiles as well. Won't bore you with all the discussion of the scholars as to whether there were tiles in Palestine at this time. I take Luke's word for it that they had tiles as well. So, they get it to the top of the roof and they decide the only way we're going to get our friend to Jesus is to make a hole in the roof. And so as it's made of clay, I don't know what they use for this, but they dig around a bit and they make a hole big enough, maybe they put him end on and sort of strapped him on and just lowered him down by 
by ropes or something, they certainly didn't lack in ingenuity, uh, right in front of Jesus. I discovered a picture from, I think it's an early 17th century picture uh, of this, which I thought you might like to see on the, on the, uh, on the screen. I'm not sure what the owner of the house thought about this. Uh, I'm not sure what the crowd thought about it. I'm not even sure what Jesus thought about it. You imagine, I've had some funny experiences preaching in churches. Uh, I was once preaching in a church, this is perfectly true, and as I was preaching, suddenly I saw the back door open and a couple of youths, what we used to call yobos, threw a dog in the back door. (laughs) And it obviously didn't like the service because it ran round and out the other side again. That's very distracting. So here's Jesus' teaching. Crowds of people, all the religious leaders sitting, listening to everything. And this man is lowered down. Presumably some of the debris began to fall first of all. You might imagine it happening. Well, we won't imagine it happening here. But, um, until he reached ground level, right in front of Jesus. And we read that Jesus saw their faith. Jesus must have looked up and saw his four friends looking down. Maybe he looked down and saw the man and saw his faith as well as that of his friends. Uh, Howard Marshall comments, the perseverance and ingenuity of the companions of the sick man are seen by Jesus as the indication of a faith which believes in his power to such an extent that it's prepared to go to the limit in order to reach him. Some of us are very casual about following Jesus. First sign of difficulty... Or if it rains, we decide we're not going to go to church, we'll do something else, or do something better on telly or whatever. These people are keen, enthusiastic. So, here we are. Jesus looks up and he sees them peering down. Everybody's open mouth looking around. All right? The man's lying on the mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Well, if you didn't know the story, what would you expect? Surely you'd expect him to say, especially as we learn from Luke, that the power of the Lord was present with Jesus to heal the sick. You'd expect him to say, take up your mat and walk. Be healed. But he didn't. Here's the surprising statement. Friend, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, why did he say that? Some people have suggested that the reason was that the man's sickness was caused by his sin and his sin needed to be dealt with before his sickness could be healed. Now, although there sometimes is a connection between sin and sickness, it's certainly not in equal proportion. It doesn't seem to be the case here. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus looks at this man and he looks at his friends and he sees the man's greatest need you see his friends thought his greatest need was he was paralysed the man thought his greatest need was I'm paralysed but Jesus saw his greater need and gave him a greater gift you see the forgiveness of sin is the greatest gift that you can ever receive now maybe you've come here or been brought here not on a mat but by a friend or friends because you're in need. Maybe your life's in a mess. And they've said, look, you've tried everything else, come with us to Charlotte Chapel this evening. Maybe your finances are in a mess. Maybe your relationships are in a mess. Maybe you've got a physical problem like this man had. And you're here to see if Jesus can help you. 
And I want to say to you this evening that what he offers to you is your greatest need. The forgiveness of sin. And while the story of the healing of the leper focuses on the restoration of our relationship with others, the focus here moves to something even more important, the restoration of our relationship with God. See, this is the whole reason why Jesus came into the world. This is the reason why he doesn't want to be diverted by spending his whole time doing healings. Because you can heal someone, still going to die. You can solve someone's financial problems, or marital problems. God's grace, I've done this in the past. Someone's come to church and said, I've got a marriage problem. Work through it with them. From time to time, people's marriages are restored. But if that's all it is, well, a good marriage counsellor would probably do a better job than me, actually. And the financial advisor could certainly sort your finances out better than I can. But you see, your greatest need is that you might be forgiven of your sin and that God might restore you to that relationship with him for which you were made. That's what Jesus came to the world for. Joseph, his father, to be one who was to look after him, was told, Mary, your fiancée, is pregnant. You're going to give a son. You have to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's what Jesus means. Joshua, saviour, deliverer. And it's for this reason that Jesus has come into the world. That's why he's heading for the cross. As we go through this series in Luke, we'll see Jesus heading for the cross. Nothing diverting him because it's only on a cross that he'll die and our sins can be forgiven because he will bear our sin on the cross. That's why it's been great this evening. We've, we've focused so much on, on the sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for us and thank you for the cross. This is the heart of the Christian faith because at the heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus alone can offer forgiveness of sin. I wonder this evening, have you experienced that yourself? You know it is to be forgiven of all the wrong things you've done, for them to be wiped out and to know a personal relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ. It's the good news, it's why it's called the gospel. The best news in the world. But forgiveness of sins is not only the greatest gift, it's also the greatest problem. Or difficulty. When Jesus says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven, it not only causes surprise, but it causes great offence on the part of the religious leaders who are sitting there. As they say to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they were right. Only God can forgive sin. Only God has the power and authority to declare a person right with himself. One writer summarizes it and says, Only God can forgive sin, for only the offended person can forgive the offender. So when Jesus says to the man, Your sins are forgiven, there are only two possible conclusions about this. Either Jesus is God, or Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Now the religious leaders don't even entertain, it never crosses their mind for a single moment, that option one is correct. They immediately jump to the conclusion of option two. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. This puts Jesus on a whole different level to some popular teacher or some healer. The stakes have been raised. That's why the religious leaders are introduced here. Because Luke is telling us, this is the most crucial issue of all. Who is Jesus? 
Does he have the power, not just to heal people, does he have the power to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven? The most serious offence in Jewish law is blasphemy. And a person who commits blasphemy deserves and should be punished by death. Find that again in Leviticus chapter 24, if you're making notes, verses 10 to 16. And this is what the religious leaders immediately think. They don't speak out loud, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. He can, as the Son of God, he knows what they're thinking, and so he challenges their conclusion. So in answer to their question, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is blasphemy. Jesus throws out himself a challenging question, which also has two options. Notice what Jesus says. Which is easier to say? He says to them. Look, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Notice the question. He's not saying which is easier to do. But what is easier to say? The answer of the critics is obvious. Anyone can say to you, your sins are forgiven. How do you know whether it's happened or not? But if you've got a guy lying there who's absolutely paralysed, and has been for years, and you say to him, take up your mat and walk, either he'll do it, or he'll lay there flat on your back and you'll think he's a fake. Everyone will see whether you're true in what you say. So Jesus chooses the harder option to say in order to demonstrate the first option that he really does have the authority to forgive sins. A demonstration of the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take your mat and go home. It's the first occasion that Jesus uses the title, the Son of Man. You'll find it constantly through Luke's Gospel. Uh, Most people think he chose this term because the other term, Messiah, had very loaded overtones and and wrong conceptions in the mind of the Jewish people, more in the the concept of a, a military conqueror. The Son of Man stresses that Jesus is fully human, but if you know the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the Son of Man is a title given to one who has supreme power and authority. And this authority is now proved by what happened. Immediately the man stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, went home praising God. Verse 25. Lovely story, isn't it? The mat had carried the man, now the man carries the mat. And Luke concludes the story by describing the response of the people. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. But when we read everyone, Luke doesn't mean everyone present. It means everyone among the people. For the religious leaders are not at all convinced. Instead of going back and re-examining their conclusions, instead of saying, yeah, you've proved the point. That's a miracle, that man is walking. Therefore, we need to take seriously that you may, at least may, have the power to forgive sins. They become even more entrenched in their hostility to Jesus. And as we go through Luke's Gospel, we discover that this hostility 
will eventually lead to action as they conspire to kill Jesus because they think he is guilty of blasphemy against God. They refuse to accept his claim to divinity. You see, the person of Jesus is like that. I was amazed when people say, oh yeah, I, I really respect Jesus and what he said. And they simply say, have you read what he said? Have you read what he claimed? You, you can't remain on the surface with Jesus and just say, well, he's a nice religious teacher. What he claims is to be the Son of God who alone has power to forgive sins. And you either come to the point where you say, if that is the case, I need to be forgiven. Or you turn your back on him and say, I do not believe that. I will not submit to that. You see, you can't be kind of neutral about Jesus. And that's what we're seeing in this Luke's Gospel. We'll see it more and more, that Jesus is a very controversial person. Now, maybe you're not a Christian this evening, and maybe you're still thinking this through. At some point, you have to come to the issue of the person of Jesus and who he really is. So, let me just conclude, I'm almost finished, where we started. WWJS. What would Jesus say? On the basis of what we've read this evening, what happened then... What would Jesus say to us today, to you and me, if he were physically present? He's present by his Holy Spirit when we gather in his name, but what would he say to us? I can't be certain if you ask me what Jesus would say about the personal details of your life and your circumstances, your needs. But I can be certain of one thing he would say, which he does say to each one of us if we truly seek him. He will say to any who come to him, seeking him, your sins are forgiven. And that is the most wonderful and great gift he can offer you. And when that happens, you will have a restored relationship, first with God, and then with other people. I wonder if you've done that yet. You made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the, what the Bible calls the joy of sins forgiven? Going out with a clear conscience, with a load lifted off your back, and saying, I've been forgiven. And to those of us who dismiss or doubt his claims, I simply ask you again this evening, look at the evidence. I conclude with a well-known story, you've probably read it yourself, some of you at least. A story of how one person describes his journey to faith. The last century, C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford classics professor. As a young man, this picture of him is a young man. This is what he writes about how he came to faith. Very interesting words. He says, In the Trinity term of 1921, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Then he says, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? Such is the love of God. Maybe you're that person this evening. Reluctant convert. Why did Lewis come to that point? Because he looked at the evidence and in the end it was overwhelming and he had to bow the knee and say, God is God. 
Jesus is Lord. If you've never read the story of his book, it's still well worth reading. And I leave you with the title, which you may know. It's called Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. My prayer for each one of us this evening is that we might experience that same surprise and that same joy. Let's pray together.